switch baits. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain Soak Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time of Lawrence Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? And welcome back. Thanks for downloading the podcast. How's everyone doing? I'm blown away by the response. Guys, if you haven't checked out the last episode with Jürgen Benicke, it's a treat. Basically, one of the early pioneers of the sport of downhill as we know it. Great podcast. And also, there's a fundraiser and a GoFundMe page. He feels he's one of the luckiest mountain bikers to live. He's got away with some big crashes and he wants to give back to those that haven't been so lucky. So please check out Jürgen Benicke's Instagram, check out the fundraiser links, check out the GoFundMe where he's asking everyone that's had a crash that they could have been hurt, just go donate $10 to that GoFundMe. It's going to Wings for Life. So guys, please get behind that. And now let's move on to the next episode. I've got none other than the GOAT himself. It's Greg Minar. He's the most prolific downhiller of our time. He's got the most World Cup individual victories. He's got three World Championship titles. He's got three World Cup overall titles. Now, I did record this episode a little early in the year, but I want to hold it back because I was hoping that World Champs would take place. And I've got word from Greg, and don't shoot me as the messenger. It sounds like World Champs will take place. So that's something exciting to look forward to. Guys, Greg Minar is always so good under pressure. I did want to dig into that. It's amazing how he's able to ride so well in a hometown and world champs in South Africa. It's just crazy. And also, let's not forget he had to start somewhere. We talk about some struggles in Europe, the early days when it wasn't so easy for Greg Minar. So guys, enjoy this episode, digging into the mind of one of the greatest mountain bikers of all time. Greg, welcome to the show. How are we doing today? Hey, Needles. Thanks for having me. I, I knew when you messaged me that uh, I knew I was in for something. So thanks for having me on the show. Well, you're lucky I'm not at your doorstep uh, needing a place <laughs> to stay for uh, like pre-season World Cup testing. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, flip, I think everyone's pre-season is now at home, right? <laughs> this is it. Training on Zwift. How's that been going? You know, I was um, all into it and, uh, you know, getting ready for Portugal and um, that went past. So then I was getting ready for uh, Slovenia and and Croatia and that's gone past. And then it was Fort William and, and then, you know, then we realized things are not going to happen. So I decided to take some time off and um, I locked down um, then opened up. So we got three hours of, of exercise in the morning from six to nine. And uh, pack that swift up, and I'm riding my mountain bike now. So I'm just cruising. I've got some friends riding, and uh, it's been nice, you know. No um, training schedule, just cruising the forest and, and just getting out. I've been, I've been loving it. But I mean, it's probably the first time in what 20, 25 years that you've been able to ride for fun at home and be at home this long. Yeah, that's true. I've never been home in May, so. It's such a nice time of the year for us, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's been cool, but it's bloody cold in South Africa in winter, or going into winter, um, and and that's been a bit tough. So um, I haven't experienced that yet, and I'm going through it right now. So it's, uh, yeah, but it's all cool. Uh, I've I've enjoyed it. It's it's um, I haven't had so many meals at home. 
I haven't spent so many nights in my own bed, and uh, I, I'm enjoying it, to be honest. Do you think it's kind of a almost a reset for you after so many years traveling, and you, you're kind of getting the itch because you're now forced to stay at home? Is there a real itch to go traveling and racing? Yeah, I think it's been a it's, it's definitely a reset. It's not just a pause. You know, initially when everyone was going into these lockdowns, I think we all thought this was a pause, and I think. It's actually a reset. I mean, our bodies needed it, our minds needed it. You know, you just need to relax a little bit and regroup. And I think it was for you know, nice being forced. You know, we we if I go on holiday or, or try and take some time off, I normally try and do so much in that time that it's not really a break. Where this is a forced holiday, so I definitely needed it. My body needed it. My mind needed it. So um, I, I've I've really enjoyed it. Well, I mean, you the most prolific winner on the World Cup circuit, 21 World Cup victories, three world titles, three World Cup overalls. I mean, the list goes on. And I think many interviews cover your highlights and all these amazing accomplishments, which we obviously will talk about, and that's what made you who you are. But I think for the listener, maybe to better understand, there's been a lot of hardships and work that went into making you the rider you are. And what interests me is a lot of people don't know the struggles and the time you spend in Europe perfecting this craft um, to become known as the GOAT and someone that can perform on any track. That doesn't just come from sheer luck or you're born with it. Can you talk about those early years in, in Europe and some of the struggles or races that people don't even know about? Cheese Needles, uh, to be honest, uh, I don't really think about that time or those times. I think when you're trying to get somewhere, you forget all the hardships. They weren't really hardships. They were just steps along the way trying to get to where you were. So flip to think back and, and try and think of all these the struggles. Is, it doesn't really pop to mind or or something that I think about often. I mean, you know, when I look back and go, yeah, I was in, in Europe hating it. You know, back then there was no WhatsApp or, or Skype or video call. It was... Um, you had to phone on a landline if you wanted to chat to someone who used to charge you the earth. So that like would be limited to once a month. So, you know, I remember going over to Europe, racing the mud, which is something that I never experienced, um, especially on such steep, rocky, rooted tracks. Um, and then just not speaking the language and having all this weird European food. It was just, uh, I, I honestly thought my first year going over to race to Europe, I just thought, flip, I've made biggest mistake of my life and uh, I had left school to go and race and I just thought Flip, I need to go back to school and finish up and, and just live a normal life because this is way too difficult so that did cross that did cross your mind that first year over there oh yeah in the struggles when oh 100% I, I mean we didn't have junior race in the world cup so it was only elite men and uh, I couldn't qualify it was raining I went and raced in France and it's tricky, you know, it's, you, you see all these guys um, hanging out and they're a group of French guys and, and having a great time speaking their, their, you know, their mother tongue to each other and, and that's all cool. And you from an outsider don't understand a word what's going on and you, you're not having as much fun. And, and that's kind of tough to see. And, and so, yeah, not qualifying for World Cups and uh, just not having a great time generally was hard. But as soon as I was home and I was training again, trying to focus on on maybe qualifying for a World Cup, you soon forget about that hardship and you, you're aiming to to get up there, you know. So you made the decision to leave school, which I'm not sure everyone knows about, as well as you've been quoted as saying you didn't really have a backup plan. 
and you wouldn't advise that to others and you're talking about backup plans, but do you think that kind of forced you to make it work and push through those hardship because you you bet it all on, on making a career of mountain biking? Yeah, I don't think it – I don't felt like that um, forced me into it. I think my competitiveness kind of drove me to to get there. I don't think it was a, a smart move. Um, but, it, you know, being in South Africa and racing where we did, it, it's hard to for me to be finishing school and focusing on school and trying to get to Europe to learn different style of tracks and different style of racing. So I had to sacrifice something. And, and at that point, uh, my school wasn't very strong. So I probably wasn't sacrificing much by leaving. And, uh, you know, it, I think nowadays when you can um, – you can do online school and and um, and there's more access to communicate via internet. I think it's a lot easier now. Back then it was like grab this whole bunch of books and you've got to finish this year, you've got to complete this year. It's all done by correspondence and you've got to post it off. And, you know, that's that's way different to what we are now. Um, so I don't think there's any excuse for any kid to say that he needs to leave school early and, and – uh, focus on mountain biking. I think it's 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 easy enough nowadays to, to be able to do both. Well, that's great advice. And I think people don't know about the sacrifice. Obviously, going to Europe, yes, it's cold, it's muddy. But, I mean, you, you pack a bag and you leave for months on end as a 16-year-old or 15, 16-year-old. I mean, you get homesick. You don't even know how to do your own washing. I think people quickly forget that you went through the same struggles that some of these privateers went through. Yes, you've had quite a quick rise to to the results and um i just think that's brilliant to speak about that a bit because people just look at you and the success and they they think it's going to happen overnight and it's taken years of sacrifice not seeing family for months deciding i'm going to leave school i mean that's a big decision to make for you and your parents and like you said there wasn't a lot of other choices i didn't go to university because it just didn't work if you're going to focus on something because there wasn't proper correspondence, there wasn't online. So thanks for sharing that. I think that's key advice to the listener at home. Yeah, you know, Needles, when you brought up doing your own washing, Flip, I'll never forget I was in, it was 2000, we were in, uh, in France at a World Cup. I can't remember if I was on Animal Orange or on Global. Maybe 2000, 2001. 2000, you were playing Animal uh, Orange, at Sierra Nevada, yeah, the world. Yeah, I sat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, 2001 in France, then we all sticked up. We all used to wear Day and Easy made these like body armor things. It was like you slip into these leggings and had knee pads on and you slip into this jacket that had elbow pads and a back protector. And so I'm trying to wash this bloody thing. And I stick in the washing machine and we're in front. So I'm not understanding how this machine's working. So I finally get the wash on, stick it in the dryer. I come back and it's melted the plastic off all the protection, all the protection plastic has melted off these knee pads, these elbow pads, and it's gone all over my clothes. And I've just got this bundle of clothing stuck together with melted plastic. I did the so, same thing. Yeah, you, <laughs> it's horrendous. <laughs> you can't read what the flipping washing machine says. It, it was not me. Yeah, so the, for the listener at home, you look like a modern-day gladiator with all this plastic. Thank goodness Greg mostly wore um motocross kit to cover it but i had the same thing you're in a rush and you put it in the dryer i was even more stupid i put it in the dryer because i was in a rush for the plane just to get it a bit drier and then i forgot it and also melted the so that was the last i wore the dainies so thank goodness they kind of look horrendous <laughs> they do 
That's brilliant. So, and you race a full World Cup year as a junior. And I mean, some of the people don't know that it took you a while. You did the junior year. There was some pretty good results. It was lucky enough that South Africa had a World Cup come to South Africa. And I know that's where you got spotted by Martin, which you've spoken about. But what's more interesting to me is how quickly when you went over and you were racing in Big Bear on a Kona and then you jumped to your first year elite on that Animal Orange team. You got a bunch of podiums that first year. To me, I mean, that was pretty impressive for us sitting at home as South Africans and seeing you over there already competing with those guys. Did you have a mindset to get a podium that early? Or can you walk me through that? I know it's a long time ago. Jeez, needles. This is 99, 2000. Yeah, I think that top 10 I got in, in 99 was, was definitely a, a moment that made me feel that I could make it. Um, that year was, was super tricky. My, my parents had rebonded the house to give me some money to get to travel, and that was enough to get me to America. And uh, I wasn't going to race the full World Cup. I, we couldn't afford to do all of them. And I was going to miss Bromont World Cup. And uh, that eighth gave me enough prize money to then do a bit more in America and get up to Montanan. And from Montanan, I went home and then off to Japan to race an invitation race. And I got second there and, and made, I think, five grand, which, you know, then was like the second kind of part of that season. So the first one was the top 10 of the World Cup, then getting second to Carrado uh, Herring and Sean McCarroll was third. So I was mixing with some guys who were on some big teams, you know. So um, that gave me a lot of confidence and enough money to then travel and get to the World Cups again and to get over to the UK the following season to be on Animal Orange. Um, that didn't start off very good. I think I ended up 28th at the first national in, uh, in Elethan that I raced on. And then the second national, I was second to PD. So now I'm starting to be familiar with some, um, you know, Steve was, was winning World Cups and he was a, you know, on top of his game then. And uh, now I'm second to him at this national. I was like, well, this is pretty cool. And uh, I think just that confidence and progression gave me a bit of, bit more leading into the World Cups. And then on some tracks that I felt confident on, um, I was able to then, you know, push forward and, and excel a bit. Um, so I still remember, I mean, that year it was, uh, we had a bonus to qualify in the top 20. So if we qualified in the top 20, we'd be on TV. And I think that was the biggest bonus we got um, on animals. So as soon as you go into TV, that was enough of a bonus. So I, I think the first race in Caprona might have qualified 22nd. And uh, the idea there was I was trying to save myself for the final. So I didn't, I missed out on some bonus money to then, you know, push it a bit harder in the in the final to, to get on the podium. So I, I probably didn't make as much money as I could have if I'd got the top 20 in the qualifying that weekend. But, uh, you know, we used to race and we used to qualify in the morning and race in the afternoon. So you'd have an hour of practice in the morning, qualify, lunch, then final. So, you know, taking it easy in the qualifier was a, a good way to, to save some energy for the final. Yeah, I remember that speaking to you in Fort William because I would also sometimes sandbag that quali if I knew the course um, was too rough in the afternoon and you used to laugh at me. Obviously, you were a bit fitter than me my first few years over there. Um, yeah, the sport has changed. It has developed. You mentioned PD for the listeners at home. I mean, 
just a hero of the sport. And you seem to kind of get on very early on. And was it, were you guys kind of peers early on or was he kind of a mentor to you in the beginning? Because it seemed like you worked towards peers and helped each other in your career. What was the, f- the first few years with him like? The, the first time I met Petey was after Big Bear and uh, we were at Sheep Hills jumping and, and he came over and we had a little chat and I rode a bit with him and it was pretty cool. So um, I remember training with him in, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Animal Orange. Adele was on Animal Orange, so Steve was always hanging around um, Adele and, and near the team a lot. So we, we became good friends early on, but also used to train a lot together. I mean, I remember um, riding together and, you know, it, it's, it's really hard and down on not knowing which is the faster line, what feels right, might not necessarily be fast. And, and so we used to ride and, you know, I'd be like, oh, I just got on the inside here and it feels way quicker. And, you know, I caught up on you and he was like, oh, cool. And then I'd be riding and he'd go, should you went on the inside there, I railed the outside and I caught up to you, should give it a go. And, and that's how our relationship developed. And we used to just ride and help each other along the way. And, you know, I'd be stoked when he won. And I think when, uh, when I won my first race, he was right there, uh, ready to celebrate. So uh, it, it was really cool that we were able to help each other. And, and you know, whoever he, he rode better on the day, you know, um, we'd, we'd celebrate the, the, on the victory or, or whatever. You know, there was no there was no rivalry, really. It was just supporting each other. And I think it's it's a great understanding of, of the sport. You know, it's a, it's a tricky sport and it's it's not really against the riders. So when you can understand you're not racing against um, an actual person, but it's you trying to get the most out of yourself and your equipment uh, to get a better time, uh, when you can understand that, it, it makes the rivalry a lot less because um, anything can happen in that race run and it's up to you to put it all together in that race run. Yeah, you speak to downhill mountain biking as a whole. You, you're it's a time trial sport. You're basically racing the clock yourself. Um, that seemed to really push you two guys on, and that's unique. I don't always see that from riders now, of of that level. You know, you've got your Amory and your Loic of kind of a rival, so you're not going to really see them training together. But you guys were on separate teams for a long time, and it seemed to really help help your guys riding before there were people with stopwatches and it's kind of the technology has taken over you guys used your gut feel and a trust in each other to get the best out of each other yeah no for sure and i mean i think that's what made the syndicate so great initially i mean it was myself steve and nathan and and ratty and you know you go to a race and you're helping each other and talking lines and really honestly helping you know if you feel lines good you just share it because you you wanted the best for the team you know and uh, that 08 year, we had like three riders on the podium. Uh, we were the you know number one team in the world. It was just yeah, it's it's a it's a great synergy to have in a team when riders can work together. Well, you you've jumped ahead to the syndicate, and it is something I wanted to speak about. It seemed to be a real resurgence in your career. Do you think that has helped you with the longevity? You've been with them since 2008, with the likes of PD, as you said, Rennie, who was a World Cup overall winner as well, junior world champion. And Ratboy, but what about the egos? How did you guys manage? You've got four of the biggest stars in the sport all in one team, sharing one house. How, how does that work? Um, it was a lot of fun. It really was. I mean, you know, we had a, a sim- you, you've got to have some kind of structure to whoever gets a nicer room, and, and that was quite simple. Whoever's um, ahead in points gets the better room. So, 
um, that, it's just that's the only thing that was tough is when you got to a place you'd all scramble for the, the nicest room but barring that we just had a good time I mean it, it was a, I think a very iconic team at the time and everyone got on and, and there weren't really any egos you know it, it was a very mellow environment internally you know we, we had a great time um, really kind of family based I think Roscoe had a, a great vision a great idea for a team and, and Kathy implemented well you know um, instead of staying in hotels, we stayed in houses. It's, you know, we we had a good time. We really did, and and we made the most of that time. And it was like a, a second win for me. I mean, you know, coming off Honda, I had that shoulder issue that I had to get sorted out eventually in the end, and uh, then went on to the V10, which, you know, as a bike was just a, a brute of a bike compared to that Honda. That Honda was very kind of racy and and you know minimal travel. And, and quite an elegant bike, whereas I went onto the V10 and now you go into a rough section, you just open it up because that bike could just soak up anything. So uh, I think it gave me, I think it helped me a little bit more on my riding. You know, I, I tend to ride a little conservative and this was a bike that was going to allow me to push super hard technically and, and, and in the rougher tracks. So um, that was a big part of my move that I think that helped me a lot was um, having a bike that, that counted my, that counted the feelings that I felt where I was not confident. This bike gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah, I mean, you came from bikes of orange single pivot, the Honda as well, single pivot. And we, I do want to speak about the Honda. And I wanted to ask, do you think that the bike changed some of your riding style? Because you had nicknames like Fresh Prince of Big Air and you've got some famous gaps back in Vale when you jumped that rock almost before your time higher up on that course, you're always known for someone to to get big air but use it to your advantage and kind of hop the bike around. And then it seems now your riding style has almost calmed down a bit, but you've alluded to that you can kind of drive your heels and use the suspension of the bike and the technology. I think age also calms you down a bit, Needles. Yeah, well, I was going to ask that, but then at Mount Sinan <laughs> last year, I agree. I mean, I'm sitting on the couch asking you questions now because age is – caught up a little bit with me and mentally so i do want to know about that so the bikes helped you you've kind of become a smarter rider it seems to have changed your riding style i i, I don't think so i think if i see a gap i'll still wind it up in, in in training but you know it's it's not the same as it was back then uh, you know if i remember and i go back to Vale, Vale had like a really cool top section with these rock drops and gaps and then Kind of midway down, you had a flat road that you had to sprint, and then you went into the woods, and you kind of made your way down to the bottom. And I remember going on that flat road, and like you'd sprint the first, you know, first quarter of that that road, tuck a little bit, and then you'd sit up and spin your legs and 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 freshen up for the last bit of woods. I mean, that's how you used to race. You used to take a little breather halfway down. So throwing a little gap jump up top. You know, mean you have to throw a few more pedal strokes on the on the straight to catch up. So it was it was way different. Where now, you you, you don't even have time to to spin the legs out on on a pedaling section or something. You just straight into the next section. You just bombing blasting the whole way down. So maybe that's hindered. It's these young guns picking up the pace that have hindered my my um, my my riding style. But the young guns, I mean, you you've seen sending gaps at Mount, <coughs> excuse me, at Mount Saint Anne, and and what drives you now? I mean, you've got these young guns. It seems like when the young guys stick their head above you, you kind of like it seems to give you motivation. Is that a motivating drive to beat the young guys when everyone says, "Greg's no, you know what? This year he's out of it. He's too old. 
he can't beat the young guns. It seems like that drives you almost more than getting on the podium every weekend or, or winning races. Of course, that's a goal. But I, I want to talk a bit about this young gun rivalry. Yeah, maybe that uh, that uh, you won't be able to do it motivates me a bit more than than it should. Um, maybe that got me got me fired from you know leaving school and they say, "Oh, you're going to go nowhere. What are you going to do? Ride a bicycle?" Maybe that mentality pushed through into my racing a bit. So, no, I think it's uh, I think it's a a good competition. I think when I feel that. Uh, I have to adjust. I like to adjust the style, adjust the way my bike's set up and try and counter the the attacks that are happening. Like right now, these Frenchies have a, a different style of racing and uh, it's it's you know, not what we're used to. You know, the bikes aren't set up the same, so I've had to adjust over time and now I need to you know adjust the way I've trained and everything else and then give it another go. Um, maybe missing out on 2018 season didn't quite help because that was a quite a significant year from when um, myself and Aaron were battling down in 17 and then 18, Gwynny got injured, I was injured and, and his Frenchies just took over and Amory set this pace that was incredible. So, uh, you know, maybe missing out on that very significant turn um made me play catch up a bit, but I felt like last season wasn't too bad. Had a few results that were, you know, okay, but I was really hoping for a better season this season. Yeah, it seems like those guys have, have, have seen themselves do well. They've got that confidence. They're running on that, on that, and that confidence. I mean, my word, the, the pace some of them are showing, but then you, you bounce back. You were second at Leo Gang, so the speed's still there when it's clicking, and like you say, when you're catching up and back to bikes and you've been talking about adapting and all that. I mean, I think we all want to know more about the Honda. I mean, to ride for such a global brand as Honda when they launched this downhill bike. And I think a lot of people want to know about the gearbox, but I think what they're missing is you had a suspension technician from Showa at each round and you got to know those guys. And it seems like that's what you're using now. And you've termed this word puzzling in your preparation, but Talk to me more about having a suspension kind of technician one-on-one -on -one, um, before anyone really had that. Oh, yeah. I mean, Shoah had given us some, some great guys to work with. I mean, one of the standouts was definitely Toyota. I mean, he's a great guy. And, uh, yeah, we just became really good friends as well, you know. And, and he just gave me a better understanding of, of how to set up the bike and, and different ways of doing things. And, uh that was really interesting. Um, and I think at the time we, we were so busy focused on trying to get this bike to to race and win races that it, it, we didn't realize exactly what we had around us. But we had a bunch of incredible engineers trying to do exactly the same thing from from their side of things. You know, we were trying to race it hard and, and they were trying to create this bike that was um, that could handle and, and be the best bike as they wanted. So... I think it did a pretty good job. Um, I would like to have raced at a few more World Cups. I think that 2004 year would have been a, a great World Cup season, but um, unfortunately we had to race Norbers, so uh, they were clashing with World Cups, and we had to uh, we didn't race for World Cup season for a couple of years. So uh, that that was probably the downside to the Honda. But from a bike side, it, it was a, a it was a good couple of years of great experience learning how to. Um, taste and develop bikes. Was it as good as the kind of the awe around the bike? 
uh, it was a lot better, you know, to see these guys come in and uh, we'd be in Japan testing, shred, you know, first run, how did the bike feel? What did you feel? Timing, everything. And it's like, well, don't really know where I'm riding, but, uh, you know, it felt this, this, and this, and then I'd write it all down and go for your second run and how'd you feel? And you had to go through everything and they, they got timing and they go, well, why were you slower in this sector? And I'm like, well, I'm, I don't know. I still don't know where I'm going. How did this feel? It was cool. I mean, we we did tons of testing. That that's one thing we did is a bunch of testing, and that that was a great experience. Well, um, your preparation. Some of we know we've now spoken about you leaving school, but I think you've really educated yourself and become a, a deeper thinker than you think on on bike setup and your mental approach. Let's talk about this puzzling thing that you've coined. And for the listener at home, it's when Greg seemingly doesn't know his setup and he's, he calls it puzzling. But tell us, I, I have a feeling that without that, you wouldn't be as confident come the race. It seems like you're trying as many things you can to get the feeling that you know you need. Well, that's exactly it. I know exactly the feeling I want. And sometimes we're looking in the wrong places. And a lot, a lot had to do with the bike size. You know, once now we're on a bike that fits me a lot better. There's less going back and forth trying to figure out where it's actually going wrong. You know, we we turning the bars forward to get more weight up front to lengthen the bike, and then, you know, we're going through all these different things, and then raising the brake levers, and then dropping them to get more over the front, and then doing so many different things just because how I was feeling on track. Um, but now that the bike fits me a lot better, we we hardly even touch a thing. Well, I say we hardly. Um, Marshy might say opposite, but I, I feel like we will. It's just a lot easier nowadays. You just get on and ride, and the bike feels good. Whereas before, we really had to try and fit on the bike. Yeah, I think Marshy might uh, disagree with that. I see you guys have been playing around and you might be bleeding your own brakes uh, <laughs> when we get to the races. And- I thought I had it covered and I tried bleeding my brakes the other day and it was an absolute disaster. I mean, I did give myself five minutes before a ride to quickly fix the brakes and uh, it didn't work. So I need to give it another go. Well, luckily, you're still at the top end of the field, so you've got, got mechanics on your disposal. So that's good. And you spoke about that. I almost think that was maybe another motivating factor is getting a bike that, that fits you when these courses started changing and the competition got stiffer. It seems like you're more comfortable and way more kind of almost safer because you're quite central on that bike at speed. It is, yeah. And, you know, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of discussion about the tracks and a lot of guys going, oh, they're not as natural as they used to be. They're way gnarlier. Yeah, everything was way gnarlier on such a small bike. I mean, your your suspension was soft. It was slow rebounding. Your brakes didn't work. Your wheelbase was that of a 24-inch Cruiser BMX. And you're saying that the tracks were way technical. You know, we go to like places like, you know, you go to Fort William where that root section in the middle of the track has actually got worse over the years, more technical than it ever has. And you just storm through it. You know, the bike soaks it up. You, your tires are great. Your suspension's great. The bike fits you. You know, you go through like a root section and you, you're you ripping. You, yeah, it does look easier. Tracks do look faster because the riders are going damn fast through them. You know, yeah, we're crashing harder now because before you'd go into a technical section at like 10, 15 k's an hour. Now you're going through at 20 to 30 k's an hour. So, you know, it's, it's the bike that fits, you can definitely ride a lot harder, a lot faster, technically, um, way superior. Um, and so, yeah, it's not really necessarily a, oh, the tracks have got easier. It's just everyone's going faster. 
Yeah, I spoke about that with Danny and, and how it seems though he's calmed his riding down, but he says the bike has helped it look like that, but you're still going as fast or faster in certain sections. So the consequences are, are higher now. I mean, I've never seen rock sections like we've had in flipping, um, uh, what was the race in America we raced? Uh, West Virginia. Your last one at Snowshoe. At Snowshoe, yeah. I mean, that was incredible. Yeah. The speeds you were going into those rock gardens was was insane. I mean, we've never done that. And no, then you I mean, still had to turn in it. We were back there in, in 05 in Norbers. You raced there when we raced there in Norbers. And you're right, it was, you almost, some of them were almost trial sections on a 26-inch bike. And now yeah. I'm looking at similar sections and type of rock. And I'm, it was fiercely fast. And, and it did look so on the camera. No, that that was a uh, that was impressive to watch riders going through that rock section because it it was long and fast and the guys were coming in hot. Yeah, so we've spoken about your preparation, but I can't sit here and not pick apart your mental approach. Um, and I know you've been quoted said you don't know where it comes from, and and I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you know, I don't know where it comes from. Why are you trying to put me on the spot? No, because when we, because I've been in not your shoes, but being at a venue like Maritzburg where all my folks are around, my friends, and I really want to do well. And it's almost expected that you want to do well. So you have to try even harder. And I mean, out of the four years, I, I, I achieved some of what I wanted there and crashed in the first turn as well. But you manage to really deliver when there's more pressure. I mean, I've seen you at a pro GRT in the beginning of the year and everyone's going, what's wrong with Greg? He just got 20th. I literally, I laugh at them because I know you need more pressure to perform and it seems like naturally you're born with something chemically that just allows you to stay calm, focused when the pressure builds. Yeah, I find when that pressure comes for myself, I just dial in a bit more. And, you know, instead of having five boxes to tick, I'm, there's probably 15 and I make sure everyone's take, going into it. So I just find it's, it's easier for me to perform when there's pressure. And if it's not coming from um, the external, like, family and friends that come to watch I normally put that on myself but it, it's really hard to do that when there's there's nothing on the line you know to go to a pro GR10 you're racing one or two races a year you know in the series um, then to me it's you know it's really hard to lift my game but as soon as the, there's some pressure on and and it's a world cup I have to perform yeah it's like it's not worth the risk sometimes for you so it's a managed um, level of pressure you put on yourself and then one of the most pressureful situations you've been under is that world champs i mean i'm looking at the video it's literally behind you you can see the venue from your house yeah you know i, I don't think anyone was expecting anything else you know the locals and the locals are pretty rough but they weren't expecting like they didn't want a second place they you know when when you can win a race overseas and here's your home track i mean you were way quicker here. you know this forest for sure you do which is not the case in mountain biking um, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. It's the, the tracks will alter, lines will develop, and, and things change. So, and and in downhill, it's 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 really tricky putting a run together. You know, there has to be an element of luck. Um, but there, there's you 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 have to just prepare yourself for anything. I mean, it's like mechanical or anything. Can I mean, in my race run, I, I flattered, so I was lucky to make it across the line um, in time. So, but. Yeah, that, that had to be the worst after party. It's it's uh, one that I was just more relieved and just drained of, of actually doing it rather than like, uh, 
winning a race and you end up on this incredible high. This was like more somber and just uh, soaking it in and, and wanting to go to bed and sleep it off. Was it more of a relief than excitement that, yeah, I've won. It's uh, like, oh my goodness, I didn't relief. fail. You know, like you had two options. You had win or failure, even if you'd got second, which is an incredible that, feat. That is exactly it. Yeah. So that's exactly it. It was just relief. Oh, that sounds actually horrible for such an amazing feat inside <laughs> of your home. And that's what people don't don't see and they don't know the feeling of what it's like to be you. And and Downhill, as you said, you alluded to what a unique sport it is. And um, would you say, I mean, your your run is prepared to the millimeter in your head and your, your focus um, for a downhill run these days to go to plan? Yeah, for sure. And it doesn't always happen that way. And uh, I, I feel like I, I can regroup quite easily on a track. Um, but I've definitely got it all laid out and mentally what I need to do and and pedal stroke and brake and everything. So I do go through that a lot. And bouncing back from bad races, something you had to experience at Maribor when they changed to 60 to the final and, and you had an annoying crash <laughs> yeah. there. Um, something like that you haven't really had to, you know, deal with for a long time since you were younger. So bouncing back from bad races, have you got a mental approach to that? Something you can share with the listener or an aspiring racer? Well, so that, 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 that race was, was really tough. Um, starting the season, felt really good in testing. I'd missed most of the, the season prior because of my broken arm and, uh, felt good going in practice and, uh, they changed the order around and start time or something and we're going really early and, and it was a weird starting order and it just started raining before the, the quality. So, you know, get going and, um, the guys were battling to make it around the second corner. I mean, it was super greasy, but as it rained, so then you started to get a bit of traction. So then the top guys will go and, you know, that's all cool. And you, you're in like 30th place or, or so. And, you know, Kathy and I didn't even think twice that it won't get a qualifier. Um, but then as the track started to like get ruts in and, and carve up a bit, it got a little faster. So now you've got the guys who are starting at the back end of the field coming a lot quicker. So, you know, you, you don't qualify. Um, that's a tough one to swallow anyway. And you go look at results and everything else. And you go, shit, you're really off, you know. Meantime, in, in time training, I was only like uh, a second or two off Bruni. You know, it was, wasn't like I was off the pace. But, you know, you're 62nd in, quali in, uh, in qualities. So, you know, that's a tough one. You know, you go into that next race really focusing, which I think was Fort William. Yeah. And you go in so focused on the qualities and making sure that you don't punch and you don't have a mechanical because you're not protected now. Whereas you've raced for... 15 or 16 years without worrying about that when you didn't have protection for the top 20 but now you all of a sudden con you, you're concerned because you're not protected and you've got to make it you know make it count as well as be in the top 60 and uh, suddenly qualifying is the biggest thing of the weekend and, and not really focused on the race and then the race comes and you now have to change your mentality that you've actually qualified and now you've got a race. And now the lines that I've been on are really safe. Now I'm trying to change lines and get ready for this final. And I mean, for, for Fort William, I was, I was stoked to be in the top 10, but disappointed that I was, I think, sixth. So um, it was a, it's just really difficult trying to turn things around because really if you look on history and, and everything else, you'll go, well, you'll be fine. It's Fort William. But, you know, mentally you go, shit, I need to, I'm not protected, I'm 
you know, I've got to get in this top 60. I can't have a mechanical. And, and it, can, it can really sway you. Yeah, it sounds like you're feeling uh, some of the pain of some of the guys that are trying to qualify. So now you've got that um, experience under your belt. Nothing we'd want you to want you to experience. But how do you how do you deal with that? Have you got something at the top before you go? I know we've spoken about it. And you say often you you look and you prepare the first turn, so the first ten seconds of a run when you're in the gate, last minute for the listener at home. I mean the time's ticking five seconds to go i know you've said i focus on the first turn visualizing myself and the rest of the run will take care of itself is that something you still use oh yeah we haven't really changed much about that i still do the same warm-up uh same visualization of the track and and going into the start gate yeah once you do those first two corners you you're a little bit more relaxed and you start to get your tempo on well that's brilliant and uh we've, we've spoken about confidence a little bit the word has come up um Something that is synonymous with you is Fort William. Way too many wins there that I can even remember. Is that something that you just get there and, and, and there's just an, a different feeling for yourself? Um, yeah, early on I always felt like uh, Fort William was my home race away from home. You know, starting my career in the UK, I always felt like going back to Fort William, there's so many guys I knew I felt really comfortable there. You know, the first race I raced, then I ended up in the Ben Nevis Hospital. So that wasn't great. But um, from the, the second time going there in 2003, things got better and it just worked out. It's, it's, a, it's a physical track. It's a long track. And it's got a, a pretty decent average speed. So I quite like the fast tracks and I think it just works well for me. Yeah. yeah it seems like you've got a familiar feeling there without the pressure of all your friends, all your family and that huge expectation. So that sounds like it's more of a bonus when you win there than a relief. And confidence when it's not. Let's 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 dig into that. Is that something you believe that you can prepare and kind of fake confidence, or do you think it comes from demonstrating to yourself that you can win? Yeah, I'm I'm not a very confident rider, uh, generally. Even if I go to Fort William, I'll be, you know, practicing on track and I'll see someone come past and I'll be like, these guys are flying. And uh, so I'm not very confident and I don't have the, the, the trust in myself that I just roll in confidence and just snowball and keep going to the next event. And, you know, for me, it's um, I lack confidence. So when I'm practicing, I, I practice really hard and try to get to figure out the best lines, best part of the track, set my bike up as best as I can and, and come into the event really prepared. So I think that lack of confidence also makes me go through everything really uh, like with a fine tooth comb, just making sure everything's perfect. Yeah, I think you've uh, given some great advice there. Your preparation and ticking all those boxes, you use that to build confidence throughout the week that you've done everything you can. So when the race comes, you've got nothing else but to say visualize the first turn and, and then see where you finish at the at the bottom. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That does I mean, in a simpler well. in a simpler form, we've also got five minutes of the gnarliest downhill track in front of you. But what about um, let's switch let's switch gears. Uh, uh, I'm sure your memory. You've been alluded to how bad your memory is, but I'm sure this next topic, the untold stories on the Moving the Needle podcast, is something I'm enjoying. And I still want to hopefully keep some of them PC because we've got some aspiring riders and listeners that that are fans, but what about some untold stories from life on the road or before a race, after a race? Um, yeah, there's, there's plenty, eh? 
there's plenty. Um, I think me and you could do a whole episode on one on on untold stories. I was going to say that there's a few that I know you've been involved in too. So we've got to <laughs> got to pick the right one. Um, I think one that was pretty funny. Uh, I'd won in Labresse. I think I'd won. Did I win that race? I can't remember. Anyway, it was Labresse. Uh, in France, and I mean, I would love to have so many wins that I'd forget where they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, we went there twice back in the day, and I can't remember. Petey won the one, and I won the other. I can't remember which one was which. And uh, we stayed a bit out of town, and um, on the county at the time, Travis didn't drink, and we were in town having a good time. And he was the driver on the way home. And we had this bus full with the syndicate, everyone jumping around, and. I don't know, for some reason we thought, well, I'll turn the car ignition off and, and whip the keys out. And while I did this, Travis tried to turn to get off the road. So the steering locked and the brakes wouldn't work. And we just veered off into this massive ditch on the side. And the car wasn't really badly damaged. So I had to go across, like walk down the road to, I saw a Yeti track. And now Damien was there with the Yeti team. We woke him up. And I think it was like two in the morning. Damien had to come out of bed in his pajamas and start their track and reverse it up the road and tow us out of this ditch. But I mean, there was, there was a syndicate like every weekend there was something going on. I mean, I remember Ricky Bobby was one of our mechanics, try to, um, as a joke, try to put his hand on the brake while we were driving. And he hit the brake so hard that um, he flew forward and headbutted the, the gear lever. <laughs> And then I was shouting, who the hell's punched me? Who's punched me? <laughs> and like, it's going on the car. So there's been so many stories. It's this, I think that's what makes it difficult with the syndicate is trying to remember all the stories because there are plenty. Do you remember back in 2000, Sierra Nevada? So you've obviously, that's midway through the season and that's, I guess that's your first year elite, right? So yeah. that's that's my first year. I was 15 at the time, came over, and obviously I knew of you a bit, or my dad had had a phone call with you. And so all the South Africans arrived, and I could see that you were homesick. So you were straight to the South African hotel and having dinner and a bit of wine or whatever it is. And we got there very early, and you, for some reason, I think you were still driving with your team. So you there early as well, and no idea where your hotel was. But Sierra Nevada's up above tree line, and there's nothing around except this resort. And I know we, yeah, I think things got pretty festive. And then the next day we went, I don't know, we went to your hotel or someone was like, well, where's Greg? You know, it seemed like he was really enjoying the South Africans and some of us went out afterwards. And you you got lost late at night and you couldn't find your hotel and you had to break in or sleep in your team truck. So you guys had arrived. I was excited. I was homesick. And, uh, yeah, we had a, had a good time till late and so I remember leaving the club and it was the day before practice probably the morning of practice and I was walking up and down this bloody mountain road and this dog was following me and I was like I'm sure the hotel somewhere on the right it's on the right a left hand bend on the right I walk all the way up and then I could eventually know hotel it's just me and this dog and I looked down the pits are like they look like little lego pits you know they're so far away so I walk all the way down, and then I end up like in the pit. And I'm like, shit, where's this hotel? All the way up again, couldn't find it. So I was like, nah, going back to the pits. We had this like camper in the, in the, uh, in our truck, and I broke into the team truck, 
and uh, slipping, got woken up by everyone else getting ready for practice in the morning. And I was like, oh, sore head. All my kids back in the hotel and finally got shown where the hotel was, got ready for practice, and off I went. So not the greatest, greatest start to that World Champs, but memorable one. Memorable. I mean, you are one known for for working hard, playing hard. I know you've added Alan Milway, you said, to your strength and conditioning. So there's no illusion that you train hard, but it seems like you, you're very happy to uh, release some uh, tension after race and stuff. Do you think that's helping you just keep it fun and, and re-motivate you to get training as the weeks go on? I think it has been fun in the past, and uh, I think it, it's something that, it doesn't really happen often these days, you know. The the scenes change a lot, and uh, I know going into this year, it's going to be hard to to remain in control because you're going to have to go in from weekend to weekend, back to back races. Uh, you know, can you imagine uh, going to Maribor and you win the first race of the week and you go and celebrate that <laughs> you've got to race again? It's not going to work out well. So no, not at things your are age. definitely going to change it. <laughs> the, the, the hangover might last till <laughs> but, round three. So things are definitely changing, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's calmed down a lot. You know, back in back in the day, the, the racing scene was—I mean, guys took it serious, but I don't think they took it as serious as Nico. And uh, I think that's why he was able to, uh, you know, smoke the guys as much as he did back then. Um, now times have changed a lot. You know, these these young guns are are serious about things. They they uh, the the bar's empty after the race. Yeah, it has. It, it definitely has changed, and and I I don't want to paint you in any bad light. I've also been around you when you're going through a rehab injury in the off season, and you are really into your health and no alcohol to get the best recovery. So there's no hiding how serious you take the sport. You wouldn't be known as the goat without that. I want to play a little game. Um, Obviously, you've won a lot of races. You'd probably want to pick yourself or believe in yourself. But if we were to build the ultimate rider, and there's five categories, but you can only choose a rider once. Fitness and strength, who would you pick? Um, you can pick yourself, but there's jumping, cornering, technical ability, and mental strength. Strength, I'd go with uh, Loic. Loic, okay. Some people go with yeah. win, so I like that. Then jumping. Jumping. I mean, it can be uh, style and craziness. Yeah, it can I mean, be anything. It can be, yeah, I'm just trying to think, you know, because you can go jumping and, and style it up, but it's not really like jumping a, a gnarly gap. No. You know? So then you probably want Philip Polk. <laughs> Do you want Philip Polk yeah, for gnarly like, gaps? Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm just trying to think. I can't think of many people right now. You guys are putting me on the spot now. Yeah, that's the Ultimate point. Ultimate rider for jumping. Why don't you put Kate Edwards in there for jumping? Yeah, and cornering. He's got a bit of both. Yeah, he's got a bit of both. If Rackboy and Rennie had a child and it was a male, he'd be the best corner in the world. <laughs> that is brilliant. I couldn't agree more. Uh, technical ability? So I guess rocks, gnarly, horrible lines you don't feel like doing. Sam Hill. Okay. Um, I normally put him as cornering, but I like that technical ability. And then mental strength. I guess we're going to pop you in there, are we? Sure. Go for it. Well, yeah, you, yeah. there's others too. I mean, uh, Gwenny's pretty strong mentally. Uh, Lewick again. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many guys. I mean, from- for Lewick to come back like he has, I'd, put, I'd definitely put him up there for mental. Awesome. Well, any interview you do these days, I'm sure if they want to really know, is we can talk currently, you're going to prepare for a season coming up. But what does the future hold? I mean, you've got to be asked retirement. What about now? You've had this time to reflect during COVID. Surely some of that has to come, excuse me, across your mind. Yeah, reflect alone racing. I'm racing for the next two years. So. And I'm, I'm excited to race. It's not like, uh, oh, we're going to race another season. It's like, yeah, I'm racing another season. Um, I don't think I've ever ridden as much mountain bikes and just messing around like I have this year. And in this lockdown, it's been great. So um, that's cool. I'm, I'm loving downhill. I'm racing downhill. I don't know what, what the future will hold. It's really hard for me to think past the next two years. That sounds that sounds so exciting for the for the fans. So two years being this finishing this year and then definitely twenty twenty one or post twenty. Yeah, yeah. So this year, next year. So that's definitely on the cards. But I don't know after that. I mean, we're in new grounds. I mean, no one's ever raced into this age, and uh, it's, uh, it's you kind of just play it every year as it goes. You know, Santa Cruz know that if you know I finish the season, I really don't feel like riding it. You know, it's, we've all spoken about it. We don't really know, you know, and obviously uh, I don't think I would be wanting to race if I wasn't competitive. I think there's definitely a time where you need to kind of step back and stop being named the sport and let some young guns take a position in a team and, and excel. So I wouldn't want to be on the syndicate just to um, take a place. I either got to be competitive or I must move on. Well, I think that's brilliant. That's exciting for, for us um, watching the race. And then talk to me about the, the, the forced time to reflect. So it's, it's, you've, you've sat still for the longest time ever. Um, have you taken up any hobbies? What sort of reflection have you done? We won't pick into retirement. That's not what I'm insinuating. I'm more hoping you're going to give us the news that you are racing for years to come. So that's great. Um, so I uh, cleaned up the cupboards. And threw away a bunch of crap. I um, started making my pub in the garage. That should be complete this weekend. Um, reflecting on things, it's been a, a tricky time on business. So, you know, I know you and I have had a few chats. We both got bike shops and uh, we're trying to adjust and, and figure things out, how we can move forward and how we can adjust the operation. But it's also been a good time for us at the shop to adjust the way we, we deal with uh, suppliers and everything else. So, you know, it has been a reset all around, not just a, a pause in, in, in time. It's, it's definitely a reset. So I've kind of enjoyed the time to get on top of a lot of things that I needed to. And uh, that allows me to alleviate some time and 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 mental capacity going into the season. I like to be on top of things so that when I'm racing, I can just focus on racing. Yeah, I'm actually blown away sometimes with the amount of things that you are handing on the side. And um, do you make a conscious effort of saying, I'm only going to do emails in the evening for an hour and then I'm going to go back to thinking about the race? How do you do that when you're on the road and you've got businesses at home and things that you're putting into the future as investments, etc.? I, I try and leave everything to Monday. <laughs> So Monday to Wednesday is where I have to like, you know, if we've got back-to-back races, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see some emails going through and if something's really urgent, I'll, I'll get to it. But if not, I'll uh, let it wait till Monday. Um, I think I have a pretty valid excuse that I need to race. So 
it, people are normally quite understanding. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I'll skim through everything, but just make sure that nothing's dealt with that that can't wait till Monday. Yeah, I mean that's a good way to do it. You've got to split your focus and and uh, to be at the top of your sport. Social media—that's uh, something you've embraced, and uh, I think the fans love it. Getting an inside look. Do you also f- have a set time to do that so that you're not kind of influenced while the racing's going on? How do you think about social media? It, it, social media is really tough. It's uh, very time-consuming, and uh, yeah, it takes a lot of time. Um, you know, it's not only trying to capture the footage and post something that you want to share and people want to see you share. Um, so there's a, it is hard. Social media is definitely a couple hours a day easily. Um, it's somewhere we can't, uh, you can't avoid it. It's yeah, it's, it's happening and you, ha- you have to be on top of it. Well, Greg, uh, I'm grateful for your time. It was great to catch up on a different capacity. We've raced alongside each other and shared numerous beers and highs and lows of of racing. And I I look forward to following it from kind of a different vantage point here on the podcast. And I hope we can make you a friend of the podcast to get some insights when you're on the road. And, you know, we want to see – you're not an underdog by any means the imagination, but it's nice to see someone take down the the Frenchies that are – really going at this this world title. So thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks, Needles. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Always a good time chatting to Greg. Thanks again to him for making the time. It was awesome to kind of shoot the shit, see how he's doing. We did record this during lockdown, but it's nice to hear a different perspective, what he's been up to. And now what's exciting, hopefully the World Champs does go ahead. It really is sounding like it is. Don't shoot me again as the messenger if it does get cancelled or something like that. Guys, thanks so much for the ratings, the reviews. Hit that subscribe button so you get a notification when we drop the next episode. If you have an idea of a guest that you really think will be awesome to have on the show, why don't you send me a message? Guys, until the next one, enjoy. Enjoy.